invite you to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We continue on in our series in John, titled, That You May Believe. In our last time together, we stopped at chapter 1, verse 14, to unpack some essential doctrines regarding the person of Christ. We said last week that verse 14, as you can even see it in your Bible, it's a part of this little section that runs from verses 14 through 18. So today, we don't want to completely disassociate ourselves from what we talked about last week, because it's all one cohesive unit. So then, as best as we can, we want to call to mind what we learned about what John was saying in that verse as we unpack the rest of this passage. So let's be reminded that John told us that the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. So we were learning about the incarnation of the Word. In His incarnation, we saw that we have the realization of Old Testament imagery, namely of that of the tabernacle. And in His incarnation, though He was Veiled in flesh, we saw the manifestation of the glory of the Son of God, that He was full of grace and truth. Whereas last week, we was really about considering the incarnation and what that meant. This week, we're going to look at some of the effects of the incarnation. As we do so, it will be important that we be reminded once more that chapter, or verse 1 through 18, this is the prologue to John's gospel. He is introducing us to important themes and words that we're going to be revisiting over and over as we walk through his gospel together. So today, as we see the effects of the incarnation, we want to keep in mind that these are going to be vital to our understanding of John's gospel, because these themes that we learned today and that we learned last week and that we've seen throughout our time so far, we're going to continue to revisit them. Today, we're going to look at the proclamation of the word, the dispensation of grace, and the revelation of God. I invite you to take your Bible and stand with us as we read our passage Chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. This is the word of the living God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we turn to your word, we ask that you would, by your spirit, open our eyes in our hearts. Help us to see and understand. Help us to grasp the beauty 
of this passage, the beauty of Christ in the incarnation. Help us to see him as glorious and full of grace and truth. I pray that you would empower me, weak as, uh, weak as I am, and, and to be able to convey these wonderful, profound truths to our people in a manner that's both glorifying to you, that's faithful to the text, and thirdly, that's edifying to your people. We pray this in your name. Amen. You can be seated. We're going to begin with the proclamation of the word. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. If you remember, we were first introduced to John the Baptist back in verse 6, when John the Apostle wrote that John the Baptist was a man sent from God, and he was sent as a witness to bear witness about the light. Now, as the author returns He's making a brief parenthetical statement about John. If you have the ESV, this verse is actually in parentheses. And he's returning to talk about John again. What is he saying about the Baptist? What is the Baptist doing? He's bearing witness about the light, just as he said in verse 6 that he would. It is of note that the author writes that John cried out. John bore witness And he cried out. It's most appropriate that he is found doing this as we see down in verse 23 that he says of his own identity who he is. That he is the voice of one crying out. With that in mind, I'd like to point out that our next passage is going to be specifically concerning John and his testimony. So today we're not going to go into great detail. Lord willing, we will do that next week. But I do want to make two observations here before we move on. First, I'd like to point out the object of his proclamation. Look at it with me. John bore witness about him. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. John did not come preaching himself philosophies or anything else. He came preaching Christ. As people were coming out to see him in droves, they were being baptized by him, and many were even becoming his disciples. John did not see this as an opportunity for self-exaltation and create his own religion out in the wilderness. Instead, he continued to proclaim Christ. And as we have noted before, he wasn't even interested in keeping his followers as His followers, not out of bitterness or anything of the sort, of course. People were leaving him to follow Christ. We're going to see that later in chapter 3. That He speaks of them leaving in such a way that it gives you the impression that he's glad that they're leaving. Why? Because they're following the one that he has been proclaiming. His ministry was for a short time. He understood that he was here as a witness, to bear witness about Christ, and he did that faithfully. And why was it right and fitting that he would preach Christ? After all, he didn't have the New Testament. He didn't have the Reformation Study Bible. 
why would it be appropriate that he would preach Christ? Well, let's see what the text says. John says, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Herein, John bears witness to the supremacy of Christ and his deity. He bore witness to the supremacy of Christ by saying that he who comes after me ranks before me. He's greater than me. One commentator points out that the, that the verb here in the original means being before in place, position, or dignity. Though John came on the scene first, it is Christ who has the greater glory. John wasn't saying, this is my turf, Jesus. John was proclaiming Christ. It is Christ who had the greater glory. Though John is said to be the greatest man born among women, he still pales in comparison to the greatness of Christ Jesus. And John knew this. Why was it right and fitting that John preached Christ? Because Christ is better than John the Baptist. Because Christ is greater than John the Baptist. He says, he was before me. That's a strange thing to say. He who comes after me was before me. What does that mean, John? Has he just had a few too many locusts? He who comes after me was before me. Well, clearly, he's bearing witness to the deity of Christ. We've spoken at length about the word was. It's the most exhilarating preaching. The word was. What does the word was mean when it's used in connection with Jesus? We understood from the very first sermon that it indicates being. That in verse 1, we could safely paraphrase it by saying, in the beginning, the word already was. It indicates that he was being. Well, it's the same word that we find here when John says that he was before me. He already was before me. I point this out because John the Baptist was born before Jesus. We know this, yes? John the Baptist is born before Jesus was. He's older than Jesus. And still he is saying, the one who comes after me was before me. So he clearly doesn't simply mean age because John the Baptist is older. But in another sense, he's not. The baptizer says this because he knows that Jesus was in the beginning with God, that He is eternal, that He is the pre-existent One, that He is before Genesis 1-1, Jesus already was. John the Baptist gives us a clear statement indicating that he knew that Jesus is God. So, why would John the Baptist say that Jesus ranks before him? Because Jesus is eternal because he is preexistent, because he was in the beginning with the Father, and because he is God. Is that enough reason for us? It is right and fitting that John the Baptist preached Christ because the person of Jesus who walked to this earth was God in the flesh. What an amazing testimony this is that John was here to proclaim, the first one to do so. Simple truth. And so profound. We move on to our second point today. The dispensation of grace. Look at verses 16 and 17. 
For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now for this heading, I do not have in mind the popular way of interpreting the Bible known as dispensationalism. What I have in mind is dispensing grace. He says that we have received grace upon grace. That means that Jesus was dispensing grace, that he gave grace. Let's first deal with a very important word here, fullness. If you put verses 14 and 16 together, it says that we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. John the Apostle wants to put in mind what he said at the end of verse 14. He wants this to be fresh in our minds, that the word is full of grace and truth. And it's from that fullness that we have all received grace upon grace. We see that fullness points us to the reality that Christ is the all-sufficient fountain of all that we need. It's another way of pointing out that Jesus is God. Only God has this fullness. Paul uses the same word in Colossians when he's speaking of Christ. He says that in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwelt bodily. It is that fullness, from that fullness, from which we all receive. And His fullness is such that John can write, we have all received grace upon grace. That is, of course, all of us who are in Christ. In one sense, all people do experience the common grace of God, but in a much more wonderful sense, all of those who are His experience His saving grace. There is enough in Christ to satisfy the needs and desires of every single member of his body and yet not leave Christ empty. We receive out of his fullness and it doesn't leave him empty. A.W. Pink said it beautifully. Quote, There is laid up in Christ as in a great storehouse all that the believer needs both for time and for eternity. End quote. Christ is providing from His own fullness. It's not external to Him. We are receiving from His fullness. John records for us in his gospel Jesus' own words that will give us an indication of what this actually looks like. Jesus will tell us that He is the bread of life, that He is living water, that he is the vine, that he is light, that he is life. And we, you and I, friends, we are invited in as empty, hungry beggars with nothing to offer, only empty hands to receive out of his fullness. What exactly have we received from his fullness? Certainly the better answer 
to this question is to answer it with another question. What have we not received from his fullness? Certainly life, light, and everything else. But John does obviously specify here that we have received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. The sentence could probably just be written over and over and over. Many commentators here have a difference of opinion regarding how to interpret grace upon grace, if you can believe it. I'm not going to get into the wide range of views about the preposition that we have translated as upon. I'm sure you all would be exhilarated if I would spend the next 45 minutes talking about the different ways that we could translate a preposition. I know that's what you were hoping we would do today. But we will save that conversation for another day. I will instead opt to remind us of John's unique writing style. We've said many times throughout our short time already that John writes in such a way that there is a depth of meaning in his words. This doesn't in any way suggest that what John wrote can just mean whatever you want it to mean. It's not what we're saying here. John clearly has a point that he is making and specific truth that he is conveying. And obviously he's doing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit had something very specific to say. And at the same time, the truth that is being conveyed, it is as though it is multi-layered. If we read carefully here in our passage, we can see that John is going to subtly connect, subtly connect some dots for us that will help us to understand what does grace upon grace mean. In verse 14, we are told that the word is full of grace and truth. Then verse 16, we are told it is from his fullness that we have received grace upon grace. Then if you look at verse 17, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Do you see some dots connecting there? Full of grace and truth, from his fullness we have received grace, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The word that we have here, I will say one thing about this preposition, and the crowd went wild. The word that we have here can also be translated as in place of. So it could say, grace in place of grace. In fact, if you have the NIV this morning, it says that we have received grace in place of grace already given. It is suggesting a substitution. Grace in exchange for grace. But not just a substitution, but perhaps an upgrade from something that was already good to something even better. Here we might ask, what are these graces then? What grace is being given in place of another grace? How do you improve upon grace? I think that the key is found in verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace 
upon grace. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace upon grace. John is contrasting these two graces that essentially could be boiled down to mean the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Grace upon grace. The Old Covenant being represented by the law being given through Moses. The New Covenant is grace and truth coming to us through Jesus Christ. Let's think through this together. Because I'm sure that One of the last things that enters any of our minds when we think about the law is grace. What do you mean, grace from the law? Now, I I certainly do not mean to imply that if a person keeps the law, he will receive grace. But what I do mean is that the Old Testament saints, the ones living under the Old Covenant, the ones who were under the law, that they did indeed experience the grace of God. It could even be said that the giving of the law was itself a grace of God. One way that we can see this is that the law of God reveals God's character. It reveals God's nature. It reveals God's righteous requirement for His people. And remember, the law was given to one specific people, the Israelites. They were graced with this opportunity to know Yahweh. And they were given the law so that they could walk in covenant with Yahweh. This was not given to everybody. It was a unique grace for God's chosen people. We see God's character revealed in the law in Leviticus when it says, You shall be holy as I am holy. What does that teach an Israelite? That God is holy. This is a grace in being invited in to know about the character of God. Moreover, one needs only read through the Old Testament to see countless examples of God dispensing His grace upon the undeserving. Look down at verse 45 with me. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Well, that's strange. We know that the prophets prophesied about the coming of Christ, but how often have we considered that even in the law, Even the law revealed Christ. Even the law spoke of Christ. Even the law was foreshadowing Christ. How often, friends, if we're being honest this morning, do we think about reading through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and say, oh, that sounds terrible. The law sounds horrible. Can't believe that. Can't believe they had to do those things. But how many Old Testament saints do we read of who loved the law of God. We learned that in Psalm 119 in Sunday school, didn't we? In different ways throughout Psalm 119, it is said, Oh, how I love your law. Do we think about God in those terms? Oh, how I love your law. I love rules. That's not our natural inclination now, is it? We will sing of the grace of God. 
But do we sing of how beautiful and wonderful the law of God is because it is holy and great and it is good. We know that the prophets prophesied of the coming of Christ. But even Christ is written about in the law. And that's not, this isn't the only verse where we will find this kind of language either. If you think back to the, on the road to Emmaus in Luke, Jesus is speaking with some of the disciples and Luke records, beginning with Moses in all of the prophets, he, meaning Jesus, interpreted to them, the disciples, in all the scriptures, the things concerning, guess who, himself. That Jesus is written about even in Moses. That's a way of referring to the Pentateuch, which is Genesis through Deuteronomy. It's also referred to as Torah. Jesus tells us that we can find writings about him in those five books. And so does the disciple Philip here in chapter 1. But Paul went even a step further in Galatians chapter 3. He says, The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to who? Guess who? Abraham. Well, Abraham was under the old covenant. Abraham is written about in Genesis. So grace can be found in the Old Testament in that Christ and the gospel were proclaimed. I would say that's a grace indeed. Now, albeit they are proclaimed in a veiled sense, of course. It has been said that Christ is in the Old Testament concealed and in the New Testament revealed. We looked at one such example last week, didn't we, with the tabernacle. Because Christ is written about in the law while yet being concealed, so we could say that grace can be found in the Old Testament in a veiled sense, concealed. Grace is foreshadowed in the garden, isn't it? In the garden of Eden, when God kills an innocent animal to make coverings for Adam and Eve after they sinned. Grace is foreshadowed in the day of atonement, in the shedding of innocent blood to cover the guilt of another. This is not grace in the way that you and I experience it now in the new covenant, of course not. But for those Old Testament saints who believed God, when he said that if they slaughtered a bull on the day of atonement, their sons would be remitted, my friends, it was counted to them as righteousness. From Genesis to Revelation, from the beginning of the Old Covenant to the end of the New Covenant into eternity, every single person, the way that they come to God is they are saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. Whether it be the foreshadowing of Christ in the Old Covenant or now in the full revelation, the full understanding of Christ in the new covenant, it is by grace through faith in Him. Grace is foreshadowed in the mediatorial work of the high priest who would go into the holy place on behalf of the people to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. Well, do we have a high priest today? It's not me. Hebrews tells us that Christ is our high priest. Jesus is our high priest. He is the one mediator between God and man. He spilled his own blood, not the blood of another animal. He spilled his 
own blood to cover his people. And he also fulfills the high priestly role of intercession on behalf of his people. And praise God for that. Melchizedek in Genesis. We're also told in Hebrews. That's another foreshadowing of the high priestly role of Jesus. But how about Moses himself? His role and his office point us to Christ. He's not Christ, but it points us to Christ. How so? Because Moses was the one who led God's people out of what? Slavery. He brought the law to the people and he mediated between God and his people. And so Christ leads his people out of slavery to sin, and he has kept the law on behalf of his people. And once again, as we have said a few times already, he is the mediator between God and man. Many times over, Moses prayed on behalf of the people. And who knows how many countless times Christ has prayed for you and I. Grace is foreshadowed in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant. Clearly it is. But God also showed grace to His people many times over. We learn, again, from as early as the garden, how grace works, but also how the law works. Do this and live. If you will do this, then this will happen. We have a beautiful summary of this in Deuteronomy 13. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, then you shall live and multiply. But if your heart turns away, then you shall surely perish. Do you see how the law works? If you do this, if you obey, if you follow, then God will bless you. He will care for you. He will take care of you. But if you disobey, you shall surely perish. If And then, so, if it's true, because God's not a liar, that if you disobey the covenant, and if you break the covenant, and you disobey the law, that you shall surely perish, and this was a covenant made with all of Israel, did Israel keep this covenant with the Lord perfectly? No. Have you read the prophets? No, Israel did not. All throughout the prophets, the Lord is rebuking His people through the mouths of His prophets for their idolatry and wickedness. It's not long after they first commit themselves in Exodus to keep the law of God that they have built the golden calf and God is already saying, I'm not going with you. You're a stiff-necked people. That's pretty fast. They were just freed from Egypt. They could not keep the law of God, because no one can. But how often did God also reiterate His promise to send Messiah, His promise of the new covenant that He would make with His people? It's because of this promise that God would not completely destroy Israel. He didn't rid them off the face of the earth just like He didn't with mankind. Because God was showing grace even under the time of the law. He continued to show them steadfast love and mercy. In fact, so much so that one of everybody's favorite verses in all of Scripture, that the mercy of God is new every morning. Guess where that's found? 
in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, by a prophet after destruction had befallen Israel. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Israel was chosen by God to be a people for his own treasured possession. And even when Israel was defiant, God kept his promises and a remnant for himself. So there was indeed a sampling of grace under the old covenant because Israel was chosen by God and he kept even a remnant for himself. But now we have been given the full revelation of grace through Jesus Christ. We have, in the new covenant, the final decisive revelation of the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So, I believe what John is saying is that Christ is greater than the law, greater than the prophets, greater than Moses, Abraham, or Jacob. And so is the revelation of grace as seen in the new covenant in Christ's blood, greater and fuller than the veiled grace that was seen in the old covenant. I want you to notice too that this, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In His coming, in the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, grace and truth came in the person of Jesus Christ. The law was external to Moses. Moses didn't know the law. He couldn't come up with the law. It was given to Moses. He had to go up on the mountain to God to bring down the law. But in the incarnation, God came down to us. And he didn't bring more law. He brought grace and truth from which we all partake out of his fullness. This is a greater grace than anything ever known under the old covenant as we now have the substance, we now have the fulfillment, we now have the one who was promised long ago, even as far back as Genesis 3.15. And how gracious this grace is, that John says it came to us. It came to us through Jesus Christ. We are not told to go get grace. No, when the word became flesh, grace came down to us. As the old hymn says, this is a grace greater than all our sins. It is grace that overcomes our rebellion. It is grace that chases us down and overtakes us. It is grace that comes upon you and overtakes you. Grace in the city, grace in the field, grace when you come in and grace when you go out. And it is indeed a scandalous grace as we look at our own personal law breaking, our own personal inability to keep the law and then look to see in the scriptures that tell us that though our sins are as scarlet because of Christ, he has washed us white as snow. But with this grace, let us not forget about the truth that came with grace. As we said last week, grace and truth are inseparably united in the person of Jesus Christ. He is not all grace with no truth or no truth or, or all truth with no grace. He is both full of grace and truth. But wasn't the law truth? 
Didn't the law contain truth? Of course. In the law is contained all that God requires of man. It displays the righteous requirement of holiness and perfection. It displays God's justice in that he will punish sin. And it reveals that the penalty for sin is death. It also reveals that the condemnation of man, of all man, because we are all lawbreakers. We don't discard the truth of the law now that Christ has come. The law does reveal some truth about God, but it does not fully reveal his mercy, grace, and love in their fullness. That came in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Romans, that by the law we receive the knowledge of sin. The law was given as a mirror to reveal the sinfulness of man. But we do not serve a God who is only justice and only righteousness, only law, only condemnation, or else none of us would be here today. Certainly not myself. But it wasn't until Jesus Christ came being full of grace and truth that we have that full revelation of God. And he has also revealed to us that while God is altogether just, holy, and righteous, that he is also gracious, kind, and merciful. Christ was born under the law. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. He bore the curse of the law for lawbreakers in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, you and I. We learn in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross that the truth of just how sinful we are, that it took the, the gruesome death of the perfect, innocent Son of God to atone for our sins, that that's how sinful we are. But it also tells us about how gracious God is in that he would give his only Son to die this gruesome death and atone for our sins, that he was willing to show us grace and not leave us under our condemnation. So then, where the law manifested that man was full of sin, Jesus Christ manifested that God is full of grace and truth. The law brings us under condemnation, and Christ bore our condemnation. The law tells us what we must do, and Christ came to do it for us. And where the law sentenced every living man to death for disobedience, Christ brings dead men to life. But as I said earlier, there are layers to the truth that John conveys. So I would be remiss if I didn't also address the fact that because of what Christ has done on our behalf, that God now lavishes upon us grace upon grace upon grace throughout our lives. Listen to Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also graciously give us all things? So through Christ, we can truly experience every good grace from God as a child receiving from their father. 
Every blessing in your life, every provision, every breath you take, every blade of grass in your yard, every last ounce of food in your refrigerator, every hint of growth in Christ's likeness, every new thing you learn about God, every growing desire to be done with sin, and every last second of eternity, it's all an undeserved grace that you have received undeservingly from the fullness of Christ Jesus. Allow me to consult someone who is far more eloquent than I, the Puritan John Flavel. Quote, Jesus Christ is a comprehensive mercy, including all other mercies in himself. He is the tree of life. All other mercies are but fruits growing on him. He is the son of righteousness. And whatever comfort, spiritual or natural, refreshes your souls of, or bodies is but a beam from that sun, a stream from that fountain. If then God part with Christ to you and for you, he will not withhold other mercies. He will not give you the whole tree and deny an apple, bestow the fountain itself and deny you the streams, end quote. Isn't that beautiful? Our last point this morning is the revelation of God. He says in verse 18 that no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. The entire prologue could be summed up right here in verse 18. But a question might arise in our minds, how can John say that no one has ever seen God? If Exodus tells us that Moses spoke with him face to face. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah says that he saw the Lord. It's an important question that we ought not be afraid to ask reverently and in a manner where we're not found to be questioning God. I believe that the answer can be found by thinking through what we have covered right here in our text. John has said that the law came through Moses and that grace or that was given through Moses, and that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the current question in our minds follows on the heels of that statement. Just as it is true that the law did reveal, under the law, the people did experience a measure of grace, though veiled, so it could also be said that there were glimpses of God that certain people through the Old Testament were given were veiled. If we think back to how Moses interacted with God, we find that God appeared to him in a cloud. And on Mount Sinai, he came down as a fire. Even Isaiah says that smoke filled the temple in his vision of the Lord. There were indeed glimpses of God in the Old Testament. We can't deny that fact. But one commentator phrased it well in speaking of these Old Testament saints who saw God, he said that they saw, quote, the afterglow of the divine glory. But in the word becoming flesh, we find that Jesus, as, the, he, as Hebrews 1 tells us, that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The law was given through Moses. Man could not keep this law, but instead his sin was revealed through the law and he was brought under condemnation by this law. But in the word becoming flesh, we learn that God's intention was not to simply condemn all of mankind, but to show us our sinfulness and weakness and his graciousness and strength. 
No one has ever seen God, but Christ has made him known. If you have something other than the ESV, your Bible might read the only begotten God or the one and only Son or some other variation of that. But the point that's being made is that Christ is unique, that he is only, he's the only, only God can reveal God and only the Son of God does reveal God. There are no other methods of coming to know the Lord except through Christ. Isn't that what Jesus said? That He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. And it's the same Jesus who said, Whoever has seen me has seen who? The Father. John writes that Jesus is the only Son or only God. And also that He is at the Father's side. It's probably not the greatest translation by the ESV. Some of your Bibles say that he is in the Father's bosom. It means near to the chest or near to the heart. It's as a father would hold his child near to his chest. It's indicating to us closeness and intimacy. It points to the loving relationship that exists between the, the, uh, God the Father and God the Son. I would not be able to improve upon the way that D.A. Carson said it in his commentary, quote, This word made flesh, himself God, is nevertheless differentiable from God and as such is intimate with God. As man, as God's incarnate self-expression, he has made God known. John writes that this one, this unique one who enjoys this unique relationship with the Father, he hasn't hid God from the world or kept the Father veiled from us, but he came and made him known. The Christ came and made the Father known. This is actually a really incredible phrase because the, he has made him known is actually in the original where we get the word exegesis from. In preaching, exegesis is the explanation of a text. It's drawing out the meaning of a text. So we could almost say that Jesus is the exegesis of the Father. When we mean that the Son explained the Father. When the Word became flesh, He made the Father known to the disciples who believed in Him. And now he makes him known to us when we believe in him. Friend, has that happened in your life? Has the Son made the Father known to your heart? Have you simply been going to church all your life? Or have you come to know the Father because the Son has made him known to you? If not, I would implore you to turn to Christ today, to trust upon him, to believe upon Him, He will give you eternal life. Let's stand. It's most appropriate that John closes his prologue in this way. Verse 1 introduced us to the Word. We understand, understood this to mean in part that Jesus is the self-expression of God. And when the Word became flesh, that this was what God wanted to say or to express to mankind. Then verse 18 shows us that the word has made God known. 
The word did not bring a final word of judgment upon a world lost in sin in full-throated rebellion against God. The word did not become flesh to add law upon law, condemnation upon condemnation. The word did not become flesh to put all of mankind under a dictatorial, iron-fisted rule, turning a world full of color into a dystopian scene full of gray. The word did not become flesh to put further distance between God and man. The word became flesh to reveal God to man. And in this revelation, in this self-expression of God to man, what did man see? The one and true God who is self-existent, pre-existent, and co-existent, who gives light and life, he is full of grace and truth. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we have surely scratched the surface on these wonderful, glorious truths. I pray, Lord, that you would use my meager efforts this morning and apply this word to our hearts in making Christ beautiful to us, in making these truths glorious to us. I pray that our love and our worship would increase for him, for his glory. We pray this in your name. Amen.